Coming up on the show today, the Catholic Church and their involvement in Canada's residential school system has been the focus of much scrutiny. We'll chat with Archbishop Richard Smith. Rainbow capitalism. Some say it's just pandering, pure and simple, looking to cash in on the pride movement, but others say there's still some good to be found there. We'll chat about that. And the world is watching us. Pressure really mounting on Canada to share the surplus COVID-19 vaccine supply. Well, as we said, in the wake of the finding of 215 children's bodies at the site of a residential school in Kamloops, BC, there's been a whole lot of focus on the involvement of the Catholic Church in Canada's residential school system. Uh, As we played the Prime Minister saying he's disappointed in the Church's response thus far, and a lot of pressure this weekend, again, in terms of a papal apology. Uh, Joining us now to talk about this whole situation is Archbishop Richard Smith of the Archdiocese of Edmonton. Um, Archbishop, thank you so much for joining us this morning. I appreciate your time. Well, you're welcome. Glad to. Um, let's just talk about the discovery last week, and I think it really changed the discussion for a lot of people. Um, just your reaction to what we learned at that residential school site in Kamloops. Well, I like the way you phrased it. It did change the discussion. I think uh, certainly when I heard the news, I, I expect my reaction was the same as everybody else. It just it just brought home to everybody's heart and to their to their minds the the sad and tragic legacy of the residential schools. You know, we've had the uh, that TRC commission uh, that was in process for a number of years across the country, and its final national event was held here in Edmonton, and that that brought the residential school history to the forefront of everybody's minds. We heard the terrible and the heart-wrenching testimonies of the survivors and so on and so forth. And, but, but I don't think anything has acted more powerfully in in our psyches uh, than the discovery of those many graves at the the residential school. So it's really brought it home in a way that's left everybody, I think, first of all, shaken, clearly. But but I think with a a determined resolve to be moving together in the the path of reconciliation and healing and uh, finding out the truth of things and responding to the truth and so on, because we need that truth. Yeah. If there is going to be genuine reconciliation. Now, Archbishop, I, I watched a video that you put out this week with um, Chief uh, Willie Littlechild in Muskochis. Mm-hmm. And uh, as he says in that video, you two have, have walked that path together. Um, so, I, I, and, and you have apologized um, uh, for the Catholic Church's involvement in residential schools on more than one occasion. Um, just tell us about what you've been doing and the work that you've undertaken mm. to, on that reconciliation path. Sure, happy to share some things, but let me just preface it by saying I wouldn't presume to say that it's enough. There's always more to be done. And it's not just me, Shay. I mean, we've got uh, everybody in the Catholic Church, first of all, reeling with about this. Um, everybody, all Catholics together, are shocked and horrified and brokenhearted and everything else and really want to step up to the plate in whatever ways that we can. And that's been happening. So. If you think of all the different educational programs that we have in our schools, if we think of the service programs that are happening through Catholic Social Services or Covenant Health, post-secondary, we've had for many years at Newman Theological College um, the program of directions in Aboriginal ministry. St. Joe's College on the campus of U of A works very closely there with the Department of Native Studies. They have indigenous focus focused courses and so on. Personally, yes, I've been doing what I can to reach out to the local Indigenous leaders and developing, I would say, and I hope they'd say the same thing, some some very good relations, including with Chief Willie Littlechild. He's a, he's a man who, because of ex- his experience and his wisdom, commands a lot of respect, and, and I really enjoy working with him and learning from him and, and so on. 
been involved in a lot of listening circles and sharing circles. This is, this is where reconciliation really has to move forward. How do we listen to one another, learn from one another, and learn, first of all, about the pain and the history, and, and to, to learn from that, of course. But one of the things I keep insisting upon is the necessity of learning about the gifts that are inherent in Indigenous cultures. There's a, there's a richness there that our country needs to to hear and to learn from. They've got many, many gifts to share. But it's only if we're going to sit down and, and listen and take the time to listen that that's, that's going to happen. Uh, I've done some work with Indigenous leaders to work on treaty land acknowledgments that would be appropriate within ecclesial settings. We've done a lot of work to implement here in our local area um, some national initiatives. Uh, for example, something called Returning to Spirit is something that came out of dialogue with Indigenous and Church representatives alike, a series of workshops that help Indigenous and non-Indigenous uh, listen to one another, learn from one another, heal together, move forward. Um, there's a National Day of, of Prayer and Solidarity with Indigenous Peoples that we work uh, locally with to make sure that people uh, are invited to come, and they do come. It's a wonderful thing to see the Indigenous there celebrating um, around Our Lady of Guadalupe. That's a huge devotion uh, to them. A couple of years ago, I led a Canadian delegation to Rome for the canonization of St. Kateri Tekakwitha, many, many Indigenous people that were there and, mm-hmm. and spoke about how for them that was healing towards reconciliation. So there's a lot that's been going on a long time, even pre-TRC, and we want to keep things moving, obviously. Um, but there's always more to be done, Shane. Yeah, and Archbishop, you mentioned that trip to Rome, and I know that part of that mm. delegation asked at that time um, Vatican officials for an official apology on their behalf for the residential school situation. That's become a big talking point in our country, as you know. Um, mm. Do you foresee a papal apology, and do you think that is something that is important as is identified in that Truth and Reconciliation Report? The um, I'd, I'd say that uh, Pope Francis is very open to this. Um, just to put this in some context, so the Pope, and he, he alluded to this actually in his um, message from his window yesterday for the Angelus Address, and I'm glad, I'm glad he said it, but he, he's very, very big on the necessity of people walking together uh, in the discernment of the directions that need to be taken within the Church globally, and then with respect to specific issues. and. Uh, he's well aware of, of the call, he's well aware of the request, and uh, he's certainly open to it, but he wants to, he wants to say whatever's necessary, whatever's going to be helpful at a time that's going to be most helpful. So the direction that he's given to the bishops is, you know your people, you know their needs, you've been work- walking with them for a long time, you've, you've issued many, many apologies for the last 30 years. Um, continue to walk with them, discern with them together. And, and it follows really the principle that I've been hearing for years from the Indigenous peoples themselves, nothing about us without us. And the Pope has said, as that all unfolds, discern together where I'm best situated in that process. What What is best to say, how best to say it, how is that going to further the process of healing. So so that dialogue and that, that walking together is is unfolding, and, and we'll, we'll see. We'll see how it all how it all works out, but he's certainly open to it. But they have very clearly stated that an apology is something that they want and something that will help them. Why is there the resistance to just saying, we're sorry? At that level, like I say, you've said it many, many times. Why do we not yeah. hear it from the Vatican? Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I, and again, I'm not calling it resistance. I don't think it's fair to call it resistance because the Pope has, has expressed his openness. But what's, what's the right 
timing and where how am I best situated within that? And that's something that we're trying to work out together. Um, the other question I want to ask is in terms of records, we know that, you know, that with the discovery of these bodies and things like that, there's a lot of talk about we need to get these records so that we can, you know, get these little ones home uh, in yeah. some capacity. What is the status with, uh, there were a number of these schools in Alberta, in terms of the work that your diocese has and, and working with the Vatican and things like that, is there a willingness to immediately access all records? I mean, there seems to be, depending on where you are, some records are available, some aren't, some are being fought against, things like that. What's your, what's your take on records in the province of Alberta? Well, I think we need to make them available in whatever way is going to be helpful. I don't. I mean, we all want to get to the truth of things. And if anybody has records that are going to help us understand even more fully the reality uh, that we're facing, let's make them available. Personally, I'm not aware of any bishop or any religious organization that is actively resisting. If there is resistance, it ought not to be, and they should make them their records available. Here with the Archdiocese, uh, what we'll be doing is reaching out to the National Center for Truth and Reconciliation. That, as you know, is the body that was established uh, to carry forward the work of the TRC once it wrapped up in 2015. It's situated at the University of uh, Manitoba. So we'll reach out to them and we'll say, look, here's the kind of records that, that we have. So as an archdiocese, we didn't uh, directly administer any of the schools, but we might have some things along the lines of bishops' correspondence or diaries, whatever. Uh, anything there that's helpful, uh, we'll, we'll need to hear from the uh, National Center to help us discern what they would find helpful. And Whatever we might have, they can certainly see it for sure. We just want to help. Um, Archbishop, I, I, I thank you very much for joining us this morning. I really appreciate your time. You're most welcome. Thanks, Shay. Thank you. That is Archbishop Richard Smith, who is the Archbishop of the Edmonton Diocese. We're going to chat about something called Rainbow Capitalism. June is Pride Month, and you have no doubt seen rainbows spring up everywhere. It's wonderful. Obviously, large public displays of support. That's great. But there are some real concerns about all of the marketing that has sprung up around pride. And frankly, in some cases, it smacks of pure capitalism. It's pretty hard to escape. Um, Almost every major company has developed some sort of pride promotion, and an important social movement is being heavily, heavily monetized. Um, Let's chat now with Amy Langer, who is a Master of Public Policy candidate at the School of Public Policy at the University of Calgary. Amy, thank you for joining us this morning. Appreciate your time. Yeah, thank you. Good morning. Yeah, thank you for having me. Yeah, would you agree that, um, I mean, to my eye, some of this looks like pure, unadulterated capitalism and looking to cash in on on the movement. Is that fair? Uh, Personally, yes. I I think that that is a fair assessment. Um, There are there are different companies and corporations that do attempt to provide some sort of meaningful action behind a lot of the marketing that they do. Um, sometimes that takes the form of um, kind of financial contributions to some local or some really big um, LGBTQ organizations. I know Kellogg's, for example, this year um, is partnering, partnering with GLAAD and providing funds for that. So that, you know, there's things like that. There's different initiatives, and sometimes that also takes the form of what your internal company's policies are. How do you structure things like hiring and harassment? How do you make sure that the workplace that you've developed is inclusive of Mm -hmm. everybody so that people can be happy and healthy and go to work and feel like 
where they, they can be themselves entirely. So there's definitely there's definitely some companies that uh, just capitalizing on it on it completely um but there are there are definitely others who make efforts and i think it's important to recognize that you have that kind of dynamic happening yeah and i mean it's sort of a fine line to walk right because the the exposure and the acceptance and and, and the prominence does help does help um Mm -hmm. so are there some people who say you know what yeah maybe some people are just looking to cash in but it's okay because it, it you know is there sort of two diverging schools of thought around this rainbow capitalism yeah, I tend to find, um, you know, that generally, yeah, you you tend to have some of the more extreme kind of react, maybe not even extreme, but some of the more, um, you know, polar reactions that you tend to have is you have people who look at this with a great deal of cynicism and a yeah. great deal of, um, you know, critical critical thought and say, you know, like, it doesn't matter really if they're even trying, if they're trying to make these inroads, like, this is pure exploitation, this isn't helpful, this is harmful. Um, and then you do definitely have some people, some groups, who appreciate the fact that you have, like you said, like, you know, these public displays, and even if um, even if those displays are a little bit more shallow, even if they don't really have a lot of uh, muster behind them it's still it's still important yeah. because we've kind of when we when we look back at like the history of pride and the history of um you know like uh gay activism and lgbtq activism and all these kinds of things um you know we are definitely in a position now that's better than it like objectively is better than it was back in say like the 1950s and the 1960s um so we've made progress, but, you know, there's definitely still some work to do. And I think depending on where you are in the whole LGBTQ community, um, you know, you're going to take different things from it. Um, you know, capitalism has often been intertwined with a lot of other um, systems of power, like um white supremacy and um, colonialism. So for a lot of racialized members of the LGBTQ um, communities, it doesn't really represent something that's a positive force. But, you know, when you have somebody who's young and new and, you know, maybe they can't come out fully because they have safety concerns or even if they're just trying to figure out who they are and they just, they see these displays and they feel seen and they feel validated. So there's definitely... There's definitely a mix somewhere in between the two. And then, you know, I think me personally, I tend to fall pragmatically somewhere kind of in the middle. (laughs) There is also, um, you know, like I've seen some promotions where 100% of the proceeds from whatever the special object or marketing opportunity is goes to the LGBTQ community and pride movement and things like that. Mm-hmm. So so you can shop around and find some that are obviously um, mm-hmm. heavily invested and not just looking to make a buck. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but I think there's also, there's also something that, um, and, you know, something that I didn't really get to talk about too much in my piece was, you know, this rainbow capitalism or this rainbow washing, um, however you want to really you know, how, whatever you want to call it. Yeah. Um, it, it's kind of tied to the corporatization of pride as well. I mean, like, again, when you go back in history, pride started off as, um, you know, as riots, right. In the, at Stonewall. Um, and then yearly there were demonstrations and over time, 
through activism and advocacy work and policy change, we've gotten to a point where it's become a little bit more of a celebration and not just a and not just a hey we're here and we deserve these rights. It still is that, yeah, sure. but um, you know most of the pride demonstrations that happen throughout Canada, I know like Vancouver, Calgary, and Toronto, for example, are largely uh, funded through corporate sponsors. Um, and I mean, I, I personally don't think that that's necessarily a bad thing overall, but that corporatization um, that we see throughout Pride and like wh- how we see this like manifesting through, um, you know, companies and their marketing and things like that is it can be kind of uh, kind of harmful to some members of the LGBTQ community. And I mean, there's also been a shift where Pride has also started to focus a little bit more on the interests of um, white gay men and has kind of forgotten its, you know, its roots where some of the uh, first major activists, activists that came out of Stonewall were, you know, trans or racialized. Uh, a lot of them were sex workers, you know, so um, we've kind of, you know, there's arguably a problem within pride that corporatization, I, I can't say definitively, causes that but it right. definitely exacerbates it for sure yeah and, and you touched on this earlier there there are things companies can do rather than just jump all in for the month of june with um whatever it may be there's things that we can call on them or acknowledge them for doing if they are doing it that sort of last all year round and are much more meaningful than some of the marketing things that we've seen right yeah absolutely so um like i did outline a few but um you know like there's there's a lot there's a lot to be done but it's going to also depend on the specific community that you're working in as well like I don't want to pretend like the queer communities here in Calgary are going to be exactly like the ones uh, maybe out in um, Montreal or um, yeah or Toronto or anything like that so you know but Part, part, like you know, some of these initiatives where, like you mentioned, where some of these products or services, you know, you've got 100% of the proceeds going to uh, these organizations, and I don't necessarily think that that's a bad thing either, but it also warrants, again, a little bit of scrutiny because sometimes we kind of tend to think, like, just throwing money at the problem sure. is going to make it better. So I wanted to make sure that, you know, I kind of outlined some things that were not money based necessarily they could be but they don't have to be so that you know if there's things like creating partnerships with like different lgbtq businesses organizations you know we've got the queer education foundation here in calgary um something i found out about fairly recently is the uh, shane scott pride fund as well which is uh, aimed towards uh, helping lgbtq youth be able to afford post-secondary education and not keep dead on for quite as long um you know like we have capital grants for all sorts of entrepreneurial endeavors. Um, you know, there's no reason why you couldn't have these kinds of programs and things set up for LGBTQ creators and artists and things like that. Um, you know, scholarships even. Sure. Yeah. Or, and, and even, even something as simple as kind of like developing and promoting like your hiring harassment policies and being transparent about those. And like, if I can go to your website and I can look and see kind of what your policies are around this. And even if I'm able to track like, Oh, these are changes we've made, you know, since, you know, 
two or three years ago from feedback. To me, that shows that there is at least some listening that's right. happening. Yeah. Some walking of the walk rather than just, you know, grabbing the promotional headline, right? Yeah, exactly. So, and it's, you know, I don't think, I mean, I don't personally expect these companies to be perfect about it. It's more about being willing to go listen and say, okay, so clearly we have, you know, an issue here. We have a diversity and inclusion issue. Um, I mean, in Canada, sexual and gender minorities, we still experience about twice the rate of harassment and violence as our heterosexual um, counterparts. So there's, you know, even though it might still seem normalized kind of on the face, there's definitely still some things that we need to be doing. Um, And companies can have a role in that, you know, when they change their... uh, change the policies they help change attitudes and you know things like that so excellent okay amy thanks so much for your time this morning i appreciate it yeah thank you so much for having me it was a pleasure to be here thank you that's amy langer who is a master of public policy candidate at the school of public policy at the university of calgary talking about Canada's COVID situation and things are turning around pretty quickly. Uh, Restrictions coming off all over the place, including here in Alberta. And the reason behind that, of course, is the fact that we've now seen a number of vaccine deliveries in our country ramped up dramatically over the past month or two. Uh, 2.4 million expected this week of Pfizer doses. So Uh, We're very soon going to be in a position where we have more than we need. We've now moved past both the UK and the US in percentage of population to receive one dose of vaccine, world leader on that front. Uh, Of course, now we're working on our second doses. It's already happening here in Alberta, and it's expected that's going to wrap up before the summer ends. So soon we'll be in a surplus position with uh, millions more doses of vaccine than we need. So now there are calls to make sure that we have a plan in place and uh, we identify it and announce it to help other countries that are struggling to vaccinate their populations. Joining us now to talk more about that, we have Stuart Hickox, who is the One Canada Director. Uh, Stuart, thank you for joining us this morning. Appreciate your time. Hi, Shay. Good morning to you. Yeah, so Canada obviously, as you know, started off a little slower than some countries mm-hmm. at the very beginning of this, but very quickly here, we're moving into a position where we're going to have way more vaccines than we can use. I know. And isn't it great to be moving into this era of gratitude? I mean, we're so lucky to live in Canada and particularly because our government secured more doses per person than any other country in the world. I mean, hedging our bets, we didn't know which vaccine was going to work out. And we're all so lucky that so many did. But now we find ourselves in the situation where we have enough, as you mentioned earlier, five could vaccinate every Canadian five times. That's way more than we need. Yeah, there's no doubt about it. And we're going to have more than we can use probably within a month or two. So I guess the situation now um, is, you know, we've seen the U.S. They're in a similar position where they have more than they can use coming up very quickly. They announced some plans last week of what they're going to do with their surplus, but we haven't seen that in Canada, have we? Sure. Yeah, no, we've been calling for the government to announce as early as possible how Canada will deal with this surplus. And just to be clear, this isn't about doses sitting in freezers waiting for us to give them back. It's procurement of doses that we know we won't need to have delivered to the country that other countries are waiting for. I mean, there are only 0.4% of all vaccines have gone to the continent of Africa so far. So we're talking about 66.4% of Albertans getting their first dose, but like less than 1%. And that's frontline workers and seniors 
So, I mean, it's, it's a terrible situation, and all we're asking for is the government to commit the strategy for how these doses will be shared back. The other thing is, too, Shay, we're not asking for people to wait longer. We could share one dose now for every 10 that's administered in Canada starting today, and it would make no difference at all to the Canadian rollout. We understand people are scared and nervous about getting vaccinated, and that's justified, but we have enough in this country. Others have none, so we need to, to you know, get that strategy out there so other countries can count on those doses. Yeah, I, I read a stat where 75% of the vaccines delivered so far are in just 10 countries, right? Yeah, it's kind of shameful in a way because, I mean, ultimately, as your re- listeners probably understand... The, the pandemic doesn't end anywhere right. it ends everywhere. I mean, it's a global health imperative, but it's also an economic one. We can't travel again. We can't trade again. The global economy is not going to recover again until this ends. And as long as there are countries where the pandemic continues to rage, we're at risk of a complete shutdown again with a new variant that might go around the vaccines. So this is an urgent matter. And Shay, I think it's it's important to note too that we and other sector organizations and doctors and researchers and teachers, we're all calling for the government to do this. It's politically risky to talk about this in Canada right now because no one wants to hear about donating doses before we're fully vaccinated. But the thing is, we've lost perspective on how privileged we are in this country relative to others. Once again, we have enough for our needs right now. We just need to hear the strategy of how other countries can get even close to the kind yeah. of coverage that we are, we take for granted here in Canada. Yeah, and if you want to take a completely selfish approach to this, Stuart, it's not a bad idea to start spreading this out around the world because we know that if anything is going to derail this, it will be variants. And the way exactly. the variants develop and spread is when the virus is allowed to run through communities. So benefiting us would uh, make really good sense in vaccinating everybody. Well, I'm so glad to hear you say that because, like I said, there, the self... <laughs> You know, the self-interest model is uh, message is not wrong. We are yeah. not going to recover as a planet until everyone's vaccinated. But the thing is, early in the pandemic, before we knew which vaccines were going to be good, there was this mechanism set up called COVAX, which was supposed to be how every country would get its vaccines. And the, the idea was that we would vaccinate 20% of the world's population, the most vulnerable people, frontline workers, seniors, people who have special needs, before all the rest. But what happened was that rich countries like Canada and other G7 countries went around COVAX and pre-purchased the supply to the point now where COVAX is having trouble getting supply to meet the need of other countries. It's kind of a shame, and Canada has, in fact, been one of the biggest donors to COVAX as well, so that's good. But also taking doses from COVAX is bad. So, I mean, the government and other political parties, too, know that Canadians don't necessarily want to hear about donating doses back. But leadership is about explaining to people when it's the right thing to do things and the full message, the health message, the economic message. So we're really just calling on the government to step up and say, look, this doesn't end till it ends everywhere. We have enough. We need to donate these doses back right now so that other countries can plan for their own escape from the pandemic. You know, and you mentioned COVAX. I imagine there's some added pressure on Canada because, I mean, that program, as you said, is, is meant to help third world and developing countries. But Canada mm-hmm. was the only G7 country to actually take vaccine from the COVAX program earlier on. So I imagine there's added pressure to even do more to help out what that program is really intended to do. Well, and for sure. And once again, just to be fair, Canada is one of the largest donors in terms of our country's economy size to 
to COVAX. We've been there from the beginning helping to establish that as a mechanism. So that's good. And But the problem is, see, we don't have vaccines manufacturing in this country, something that's also likely to be addressed in the post-pandemic era. So the government was just hedging its bets. Where can we get vaccines? Where can we get as many as we can get our hands on? This is about a successful procurement program that needs to be redirected now that we know we have enough for our own population. And what people need to understand, once again, and why I'm grateful for this interview, is that this is not going to jeopardize the Canadian vaccine rollout. We're only calling for one dose for every 10 administered in Canada to start being shared back with COVAX so that the developing world can start to escape the pandemic. Yeah, and you mentioned the fact that it's the plan. We need some sort of a plan, right? Um, Mm -hmm. Can we learn from what the United States announced? I mean, they did at least come up with a plan last week. Yeah, and and, uh, they're inching in that direction, and that kind of leadership sends a really good signal as we're anticipating the G7 meeting coming up in the UK this weekend where we're hoping that Canada will make a similar announcement. But what's needed is... Less sort of token, oh, a few million doses here, a few million there. Those are needed, absolutely. But what's needed more now than ever is an integrated year-long strategy to make sure that the billions of doses that the developing world will need will get there consistently. That it isn't just like, oh, we're just feeling generous towards you, so here's a few million for this country or that country. It's about a strategy to escape the pandemic. It started out that way. It sort of was, it fell apart under pressure of, rich countries buying up the supply. We need to get it back on track so that everyone has access. I'm wondering how it fits into the global picture because, you know, we talk about Canada getting five times the number of doses we would need. Five times the number of doses in Canada would still be a fraction of what would be done in countries like the United States or China or, you know, some of these. We're we're fairly small in terms of population. for sure. But, I mean, another way to look at it, we will have enough surplus doses so not total doses, surplus doses to vaccinate every frontline health worker in Africa eight times. These are countries that have no doses right now. So, I mean, it just puts it in perspective for you how even a small country like Canada, having pre-purchased so many doses, affects the ability of other countries to do the very basics to survive. So, it's I mean, we obviously on the scale of everything, economy, military, we don't punch above our waist necessarily, but it's important for us and as, as, an international, um, as an international partner in a multilateral world that's codependent, we need to show that we are good players. We have invested in COVAX. We've been at the table for that. Um, what we need to do is, again, like let the world know how, that they can count on Canada again, because frankly, I mean, some people have called us the toilet paper hoarders of vaccines. I mean, that's an ugly thing. Nobody wants to be known as the country that gathered up all the doses and held on to them until the very end. You know, it's it's irresponsible for us, for instance, to say that every Canadian should have both doses before we start sharing back with, with people in countries who have had none. But imagine if, for instance, the United States, which manufactures its vaccines, had tons and tons of surplus doses, but Canada, having no vaccines capacity, had none, and that healthcare workers and everyone was vaccinated in the U.S., but our senior citizens and our frontline workers had none. This is essentially the situation we're in, except in countries on the other side of the world who have fewer fewer resources and less access. We have to change that. Okay. Um, Stuart, thank you so much. I appreciate your time this morning. You're welcome. Thank you.
That is Stuart Hickox, who is the One Canada director. Thanks for listening today. To hear any of our other interviews, you can find them wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And if you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us.